0: We are looking at soteriology. Thank you. Everybody else have a handout? All right, so we are looking at soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Soteriology, the study of salvation. So this is doctrine number eight in our Foundations in Christian Doctrine study, I was thinking about that the other day. It's kind of fun. We're getting close to the end, so we'll see. We've got um, just a few left. Soteriology, what we're starting into now, um, and then we'll do Ecclesiology, the study of the church, and then Eschatology, the study of the end times. Um, so we're nearing the end. See how long it takes us, but it's fun. I've enjoyed this study. Um So this morning, we're thinking on soteriology, which is a natural outflow, if you think about it, of what we've been going through. So we started with, excuse me, bibliology, the study of the Word of God, the Bible, which makes sense because that is then our launching pad. If scripture is inspired by God, inerrant and profitable, well then we would want to know what it has to say about everything else. So then we talked about theology, the study of God, specifically the triune God, and then God the Father as the first person of the triunity. And we looked at Christology. Christology, the study of Jesus Christ, which is clearly um, closely interrelated with soteriology, what we're diving into now. And we looked at pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. We looked at angelology, the study of the angels of God, as well as the fallen angels, Satan and the demons. And then, help me. Oh, then we looked at anthropology, the study of man, what does scripture say about how we are made, our nature, etc. Then hamartiology, the study of sin, what we just came out of, was an outflow of anthropology. So now, understanding who we are and how God made us in his image and how we've fallen through sin, then leads us into there needs to be a solution, and that's soteriology, the study of salvation. So, you have on your... uh, you have on your handout the outline. Um, today we're looking at introductory sort of things, and we won't belabor every single point in all of this. We can discuss it as much as you want, but it doesn't have to be long and drawn out if we don't want it to. So we'll just see how it goes. But the way I think through it, we're looking at introduction today, and um, Talk about a couple things under that, and then we'll just go chronologically best as we can understand from the scripture. So we'll go number two is, what does scripture say about salvation, soteriology, prior to the salvific moment in an individual's life? So that involves things like God's election, his predestination, his foreknowledge. It also involves the atonement, the work of Christ on our behalf, his substitutionary atonement, sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. Um, We'll look at then at the salvific moment, things like faith and repentance, our side of it, the application of the atonement, and then the results of the atonement, what all comes from it. Things like justification, regeneration, adoption, reconciliation with God, etc. Then we'll conclude um, the study by looking at what happens following the salvific moment. There is more to soteriology than just I'm saved, I'm forgiven, and that's it. There's actually a future aspect of it as well, and a day-to-day. So progressive sanctification, our growth in righteousness, as well as God's preserving those who are his. Um, We'll talk about eternal security under that heading, talk about glorification when we see Christ and we'll be like him, because we see him as he is. And I'd like to just have a discussion about heaven as well as hell um, as it relates to soteriology thought that might be fun to just take toward the end of the study some time to meditate on heaven, what we have to look forward to, as well as uh, the lake of fire, hell, eternity separated from God. I think sometimes that's one of the most motivating things toward evangelism is contemplating the lake of fire. At least for me, that's one of the things that lights my fire inside, if you will, is an understanding of what people have Um, to anticipate on the other side of death if they haven't received Christ. So we'll have a discussion on that. Um, But before we even start into any of the notes, one of the questions I had for us, why do we want to study soteriology? Thoughts, comments, why would we want to study soteriology? Why would we want to study salvation? So we know what it entails to be saved? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's number one is in order for us to obtain personal salvation, to grasp the gospel so we can personally be saved. What other reasons?
1: I think in terms of evangelizing, Mm -hmm.
0: if you
1: understand each of these points we're putting over, and you have a chance to find out where along someone's pathway they are. And to keep progressing with them if you're discipling them along the way.
0: It's good. So for the purpose of evangelism and understanding where people are in their journey toward salvation mm-hmm. to help disciple them toward the truth. It's good. Miss Ashley? Um, it answers the question
2: to our sin problem.
0: Yeah, it does. It answers the question of our sin problem. Mm-hmm. Tim? Yeah, why why would we Cuz here's the question. I, I think most of us in the room would claim to have a personal relationship with God through Christ. In other words, we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. So then why would we keep studying salvation? So we gotta be reminded all the time we uh after
1: salvation.
0: Mm-hmm. do Yeah. I do. Yeah. So it helps us in our sanctification to be reminded of who we are in Christ and where we came from, Um, what we were saved from. from. Yeah, it's good. So just as the gospel was sufficient to save us through Christ, so also it's sufficient for our sanctification and our growth in righteousness. Um, It's interesting, Paul, when he wrote... um, to, to the Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then he, he talks down through there, and he says, um, oh, let's see, where do we want to go? He says down in verse 13, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among the other Gentiles. I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But think about the audience of the book of Romans. To whom did Paul write the book of Romans. Was it to the unbelievers who were in the city of Rome? Mm -hmm. No, they probably wouldn't have read it. It was to the saints who were at Rome. And he says, I'm excited to preach the gospel to you also. I find that fascinating. And then he spends 16 chapters detailing one of the most elaborate presentations of the gospel ever, detailing the gospel for people who are already Christians. They've already been saved from their sins. So there is value Because Paul, like he does in most of his letters, he transitions from delineating the gospel in the first 11 chapters into then making practical application to the life of a saint. So, if Paul thought it was important, it's important for us too. Another thought, what Miss Diana said, um, it helps you remember what you've been saved from, the wrath of God, which helps engender in us gratitude, but also humility. Humility. If we don't understand the gospel, if we, if we start to forget the gospel promises, it's easy to become proud. It's easy to become ungrateful, grumpy, impatient. But when we remember how wicked we were and yet God loved us and rescued us, it helps us be able to give grace to others, maybe when they sin against us. But then it reminds us, wow, I'm one of the most forgiven people, so I ought to be one of the most forgiving
1: Sing the song, count many blessings that you bring this morning. Yeah. I thought, you know, if we didn't have all the other
3: blessings we
0: only had, if we only had this blessing of salvation, that is the greatest blessing
3: we could ever receive. Amen. It doesn't matter what the rest of our lives are like. That's right. We've got the greatest blessing, and I think we need to be humbled, like you said. Yeah. Amen. Brother Warren? I think why should we be concerned about ourselves <coughs> as a Christian? It's because it puts our focus on jesus christ Mm -hmm. we can talk about everything else but not necessarily focusing on jesus christ how can you focus on salvation without focusing on jesus amen say well god did this for us god did this for us but it was jesus christ god instructed his son and it was his son who did it and so we focus on who jesus is and our relationship to him Magnificat work he did at Calvary.
0: Mm. Amen. So it directs our focus to Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm. Brother Tim? I this thing about Philippians
1: 1 when he's talking only later conversation he is in terms the gospel of Christ. Amen. Mm.
0: Good. So the gospel becomes the filter or the lens through which we view all of life. Yeah. Amen.
1: It's good. If we didn't understand salvation, what's the point
0: of being a Christian? <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. If we didn't understand salvation, what's the point of being a Christian? It's good. Emily? the main thing. That's right. So that's our goal, to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> Amen. So, um, let's see. I think I talked about that already, but it's interesting because we just came out of homardiology. We're thinking about global sin, of how sin has affected everything in creation. It's especially affected us in our sinful nature and our struggle with sin. Um, And we came out of that thinking about Adam and Eve's sin and how they plunged all of humanity into sin and sinfulness. But I just love to meditate on that God God didn't make a mistake when he permitted Adam and Eve to sin. He didn't make a mistake. They sinned and they made a mistake. We make those mistakes, but God didn't. Um, It wasn't an accident. He gave Adam and Eve that free choice. They made the wrong choice. And yet God from eternity past, already had planned redemption to purchase us back, to save us from our sin. And you think about that, Genesis 3.15, God shows up on the scene. They've sinned against him. They've plunged everything into corruption. But God, he's not taken aback. He, he's not surprised. He knew what was going to happen. But he already has a plan. He already has, um, he already has a promise Even when he's cursing the serpent. He says, hey, there's a seed. The seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. I love that. To just meditate on. God didn't make a mistake. Salvation was God's intended goal. Even when we mess everything up, God was working towards something magnificent. So... Um, before I go to the key questions slide, what would some of your key questions be when you think about soteriology, everything related to salvation? What would be some of your key questions that we should answer?
1: Why the heck would he save a person like me? <laughs> yeah.
0: Why would he save someone like me? Hmm. That's right. I
3: keep running people who say salvation is something. It's um,
0: It's good. Mm -hmm. The question of are there second chances after death, and we know the answer is no. But we should look at that. That's right.
2: What I think too that we had some unexpected events (laughs) in speaking of suicides. And I felt um, like high schoolers and more people in the home and stuff like that <coughs> N- knew about salvation and God's promise to us that there wouldn't be as many of those because they have hope, like, okay, yeah, I'm being bullied, that's well mm-hmm. horrible, I hate it, but that's not what's important. Yeah. Yeah, I was just talking to a couple girls and they're like, don't we get really all the time, they don't know to become home and cry every day. I'm Like, I could have too when I was in high school. People are mean. They start. Yeah. If you don't have someone in your home or a friend who's strong in the word, you just don't have. I mean, if you're not strong in the it's really hard to know your work yeah. It's not taught to you by someone. Else.
0: It's good. So, yeah. yeah, it really does have practical import because there's a lot of people without hope. And if this life is all there is, if it's all we're living for, there really is no hope. There's no reason to live. But we have so much hope because this is not all that is.
3: You have to answer the question too. Is is there really salvation in the home where someone does something really evil, either to themselves or to other people? Is salvation really existing in the life of that person, in the life of parents or whatever it is? Sure. is the question about the integrity salvation integrity of the home
1: when those things happen what what I think you're saying is it's not just knowing the word which I think is really important but it's also understanding Mm -hmm. what that word means to you personally Yeah. so you the wisdom to have things like accepting salvation and
2: I think losing your salvation is a big question. About
0: mm-hmm. why teenagers, not even just
1: teenagers, everyone like, can you lose yep. your salvation? I'm not
0: saying that's a
1: question, I'm saying that's a big question. Right?
3: Kind
0: of Christianity. Yep. It is. Some people believe you can lose it, so I think that's a good one to answer. He's still in the world, That's right. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. What? What might prevent someone to like? Some people think if you do a certain thing, you
3: lose your salvation. Mm-hmm.
2: I talked to you, they're like, Henry, can you pray with me while I'm saved? And I'm like, no, you have to believe it in your heart. And they're like, well, what does that mean? And then like, you have to believe that Jesus came out and died for your sin on the cross, and that God and Jesus are real." And they're like, oh, well, how do I know that? And I'm like, well, you have to maybe burn and pray. and You know, so not a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, say a prayer with like someone or they. Do this, but and they think they're saved because they've done this ritual. Mm -hmm. But yet they still, in their hearts, do not genuinely believe. Yeah. And so then, therefore, I don't think they have true salvation in the first place. So, and then people like, oh, they lost it. It's like, no, they didn't know it was in the first place, so they never even had it to lose. Mm. So you can't lose it. Yeah. And then eventually, maybe they'll come and truly know what salvation is and truly believe in their hearts, and therefore they are saved. And
0: then at that point, you should
3: see baby
2: maybe at least like something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's and
3: good. Yeah. Jumping off her idea is that maybe the question is, if we say that maybe they weren't saved, and it's kind of giving a pass on something, is how much faith does it take to really obtain salvation? Maybe a little bit of faith You know, if you were mostly sincere when you prayed that salvation prayer was that good enough or did you have to be completely sincere or did you have to have a little bit of faith and depend on God for all the rest and maybe that little bit of faith wasn't enough you know those are some, those are the kind of questions I think sometimes people.
0: yeah That's right. Yep, that's good. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah. So we're asking questions of eternal security, questions of the true nature of faith. How much faith does it take? What is faith in the first place? And then, um, and that relates with it's uh, the the fifth down on your list under key questions on your handout. Lordship salvation versus free grace. That conversation, that's exactly what we're discussing, of free grace essentially says all I've got to do is say a prayer or accept something, and then I'm saved, and it doesn't have to change my life. Um, The flip side is what lordship salvation would say is um, not only are you believing on Jesus as your Savior, but you're believing on him as your Lord. And if Jesus is Lord of your life, he gets to tell you what to do. It's no longer your life. And so there should be change. So it's the question of what is true faith? Does there have to be life change? And how do we know that? But, and it's difficult because only God knows the hearts of everyone around us. And only we know our own heart. We can look at someone and, and wonder, but it's actually not ours to judge. We can be discerning for the sake of sharing the gospel with them or encouraging them, helping them see the truth, understand the truth, live the truth but it's not ours to say so once again it requires some humility but those are important Sorry? what i said about my friends mhm i'm not yeah. sure from our conversations but at the same time they may well be they may well have
1: said it right i can't yeah
0: I had a very wise friend commenting on this very thing of not seeing fruit in someone's life. He just encouraged me. He's like, Daniel, uh, I was saved. I know I was saved at this point, but it was a year or two before anyone would have had any idea I was a Christian. There was, like you said, Kendra, baby fruit deep down maybe, but no one could see it. And he's like, don't be too quick to judge.
1: Fruit of the Spirit, supposedly, but they really weren't saved. Mm-hmm. It was them doing their works and being good people and all that kind of thing we hear about. Yeah. And then thinking they're saved mm-hmm. because they're doing all these fruits of the Spirit.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. On what you're saying, like with my salvation, I, um, you know, did a prayer in my church when I was six or so, and then. <coughs> You know, we always went to church and did all these things. And well, then when I was 18, you know, I was like, oh, going to church in college. And I went and got baptized. But I still, like, didn't want to give up my worldly sins, you know. So still, like, with my life, I feel convicted, but I still do my thing, you know. And then after I had kids, then that's where I like, gave my life to Lord. Okay, it's time for me to trust you. And before that, I wanted to be saved. And you know, this is what's frustrating me. It's like, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I wanted God to, you know, work my life, and I felt that it didn't just happen when I wanted it to happen. And so when I see other people, and I'm just like, just let it go. <laughs> just give your life to look but sometimes it takes so long, and it's almost like frustrating that it takes so long, but it's also like, and I don't know why God, you know, not takes so long when somebody's begging or like trying, because, you know, we are sinners, and we are weak, and just and so I don't know why sometimes it takes longer for others, but I do know now. Now I know, like I, you know, but before I was like, oh, maybe if I died, you know, I would go to heaven. And now I'm like, I died, I'm to heaven. Yeah, so I don't know what kind of salvation I want
0: before that, but, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I, I mean, yep. sometimes it's difficult to pin down the exact moment of salvation.
3: Always coming up against the rock, and the rock is looking at doctrine in the vacuum. It's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of existing, and and I look at this and I say, it's always been a battle between Satan and God. Mm-hmm. And in all these circumstances, with these people that we have questions about or don't have questions, there's a, a Satan is working in their lives, and Satan wants to be the winner. Yep. So it's not just it's not just their feelings or their ideas. It's also there's a, a huge ugly demon that's, that's trying to suck them out of, of God's hands mm-hmm. and uh, not allow them to become Christians or saved. Yeah. And so we're not just working in a vacuum out there. Maybe we could have the greatest doctrinal ideas, the intellectual process, and we could be the most convincing emotionally, there's going to be a result. And we say, okay, we depend on God to do that. But we also have to be aware, hey, Satan's tramping around, and he wants to steal that person away from God. Mm -hmm. And we have to be aware of that. You can't go into battle and and say, I'm so good, I've done all this training, man, I I can really fire that weapon properly, I know the tactics, Mm -hmm. and yet ignore the fact there's an enemy on the other side of the line, that we need to be aware of, and that's, and we need to recognize our so much our need for God, and, and and look at it and say, this may not be working not because I'm not doing the right thing, but because Satan has has pulled his armies together and is going to draw that person out of God's kingdom away from God. That's
0: right, and, spiritual warfare. We're we're the sowers. We go and we sow our. We sow the fields in, in our armor, but then sometimes the evil one comes and plucks up those seeds. takes them away
1: saved, as she mm-hmm. was just trying out. Mm-hmm. Begging and begging, saving, saving. And yet how much of it was not her, but Satan really working on her not wanting her mm-hmm.
0: to leave
1: his kingdom. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of control. When we recognize Jesus as Lord, you mm-hmm. mentioned it early. Isn't that alluding to you can have control of my life, I give up? Yeah. I don't
0: want control of my life. Yep. And I would argue that's what faith is. It's actually surrender. It's not something, it's not a gift that some people have it and they have more of it, and some of us are just weak in faith. There's an aspect. But it's act, faith is an admission of my weakness, my inability. It's surrender. Lord, I've got nothing. Not <laughs> that would be a great strategy. It's appealing to
3: people and say, you have to surrender to God. Mm-hmm. That's the point. If you don't, tough luck. But surrender to me. It, it, the key word has to be control.
1: Let surrender. him control. He's surrender means he's, he's going to control you. Can give, you do that? Give up control.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good, Miss Siri?
1: thirty years later I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's but it's that case of helping my unbelief. You know, I believed that four helped my unbelief and he slowly and surely did help him. and I believe, you know, at four I was I
3: had seen him I had the same experience. Except that was six <laughs> years. <laughs> so I was a little
1: bit older. Yeah you know, um, <laughs> well <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. When you're four, you know, you're obviously not being you able to know, watch the fruit because you're not like. You're just being treated.
0: <laughs> you're a baby. <lady. laughs> yeah, you're a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Ashley? Yeah, so we'll look at it more. But sanctification, it's a word that means being set apart or to become holy. So the way we think through it, salvation is deliverance from the penalty of my sins. It's my forgiveness. Now I have eternal life. So at the moment of salvation is when sanctification begins. When you're saved, you can think about that. But at the moment of true salvation now... There's progressive sanctification, and it's simply growth in righteousness. It's becoming more like Christ. It's being set apart from the sin that once characterized my life, being set apart to God, consecrated, given to him. But it's progression because we're not all that we should be at the moment of salvation. We're not all that we should be 10 years later or 20 or 50 years later. There's progression in it. It's progressive sanctification. Correct. Because I think if you are saved, the Holy Spirit is immediately put into you to help with that sanctification process. That's right. Yeah, He's the primary agent of change, Mm -hmm. the one changing us. It's good. So we'll save that. We will talk a bunch more, Lord willing, about progressive sanctification unless the Lord comes back and permanently sanctifies us. I know. That would be awesome. Even so, come Lord Jesus, quickly come. But if we're still here, we'll work through this. So key questions, I want to talk through um, this Latin phrase, Orda Salutis. Um, It's a fancy theological term. All it means is um, the way of salvation or the way theologians typically use it is the order of salvation. So we'll talk about that for a couple minutes at the end today. Um, We do want to talk about election versus free will. Just for a few minutes, Pastor actually just taught through that in Ephesians chapter 1. I think last time he taught, last time he preached, I can't remember, very recently. So we won't belabor that point, as Pastor just dealt with it, but we will discuss it at least a little bit. We want to talk about theories of the atonement. Essentially, um, was Jesus' sacrifice a substitute and enough? Or is there additional aspects to it where Christ, so there's different theories. And we want to talk about that. We won't get too, um, too elaborate in our discussion of the theories of the atonement. But I want to introduce us to it because as Brother Warren said, we don't study theology in a vacuum. And there are people out there who believe that Jesus' atonement was other than a substitutionary atonement. Where his blood shed paid for our sins. There's various models. There's a Christ is a victor model that he just had victory, and so then he gives us the victory. Well, that's part of the atonement, but there's more to it than that. So we'll talk about it, Lord willing. Um, We want to talk about the extent of the atonement, Um, and that simply is um, theologians' debate. Was Jesus' sacrifice limited in its ability to atone for sins? In other words, did Jesus only die for those who would be saved? Or did he die for the sins of the whole world, but it's only efficacious, meaning it's only effective for those who receive Christ's work. Does that make sense? That's what we want to talk about there. We'll talk about lordship, salvation versus free grace. Um, I want to have just a discussion about the salvation of infants who die prior to what we might call the age of accountability because that's rather practical as well. Um, and, And eternal security, and we just added, are there second chances? And then how much faith does it take discussing the true nature of faith? Sound like a good plan going forward? So let's take about five minutes and discuss a definition of salvation. How would you define salvation? You don't have to have some ornate definition. Just what elements would be important if we're going to define what is salvation? Believing on the Lord's name. Thanks for getting us started, Kendra. I know I'm playing. It's good. Believing on the Lord's name. What else might be important, Miss Sari? Uh, I was blind but now see. I was lost but now So mm. oh, yeah, I mean, it's totally, I was messed up, and somebody pulled me out of the pit. It's good. <laughs> I was messed up, and somebody pulled me out of the pit. I like that. <laughs> somebody write that down. We're quoting Serenity. <laughs> Amen.
3: Being rescued
0: from the consequences. Yeah, being rescued from the consequences of our sin. That's essential. Any other, anything else to add? Pastor, let me find this. My slides are really tiny. Maybe I'll make them bigger. Pastor had, oh, I didn't put it on a slide. I'll just read it for you. Um, Pastor has something. He actually just preached it at the most recent celebration of life. That we that we just had on Friday. But he says salvation implies four truths. Number one, a gracious actor. In other words, there's a savior involved in salvation. Someone who do does the saving. Number two, it implies a helpless object. Someone who needs saved and cannot do what they need. Number three, it implies a disastrous fate. In other words, death, spiritual death, eternal death. But then number four, it involves a glorious deliverance, eternal life. So I like how he works through that, thinking about salvation. A gracious actor, there needs to be a savior. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, a helpless object, someone who needs salvation, rescuing, deliverance from our sin. That's us. A disastrous fate, death. And then number four, a glorious deliverance, life. And I'm sorry I meant to put it on the the slides, but... I forgot. But there, there's some scripture on here, and I'll let you look up the majority of it, but realize that salvation is used um, in three different tenses in the scripture. There's a past aspect for someone who has been saved from their sins. There's a present aspect of we who are being saved. We'll look at that. But there's also a future aspect of we will be saved. Not that we'll be um, not that we will be forgiven and become a Christian in the future, but that there 's a future aspect of salvation so let me let me tell you what I mean titus three five maybe go over there, Titus chapter three verse five while you 're going there i 'll read one definition. Um, From a theologian, he says salvation is the work of God that delivers us from sin and its penalty, restores us to a right relationship with him, and imparts to us eternal life. Another would just say salvation is God's rescuing us from our sin and its disastrous consequences. So Titus chapter 3 verse 5, we're familiar with this text. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice the tense of the verb: past tense, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we'll talk more. This text will be crucial as we go. But there's this past tense: according to his mercy, he saved us, not by our good works. Presently, though, um, 1 Corinthians one eighteen is fascinating. Paul says it's in his discussion of how God did not choose many of the wise of this world. He didn't choose many of the skilled. But the gospel is the wisdom of God. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. Or the tense there, it would be we who are being saved. To us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Okay, so there's some present aspect of salvation. And then Romans 5, 9 through 10, much more than being now justified by his blood, now we're justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future tense, from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there's this aspect that if God has done in the present, he's reconciled us to himself. We were enemies, but now we're reconciled. Now we're justified. He will bring our salvation to completion. In other words, he'll deliver us from wrath. We will not experience the wrath of God because Christ bore his wrath. Does that make sense? That's our glory. That's our one and only glory is that Christ has saved us and will save us from wrath to come. So, I think that's interesting to think through. There's some past aspect, there's present, but there's also future, what we look forward to. So, this is perfect. We have two minutes to talk about the Orda Salutis, um, the order of salvation. And I purposely did this and didn't save much time because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Theologians like to debate what is the order of all these things, how they go in order. So, Romans 8, 29 to 30. Head over there if you've got your Bible. What theologians are trying to do, we cannot determine chronologically what exactly happens. Scripture doesn't give us enough information to know what is the exact order of all of these things. But what theologians are trying to do is consider the, the logical order of what goes first and then second and then third, etc. So reading Romans 8... Uh, We know, verse 28 very well, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So this is one of the premier texts theologians might use to say, what is the order? But there's obviously things not included in this list, like, for instance, faith. Where does faith fall in this process? Or regeneration, where does that fall in this process? But it's determining the logical order. In other words, we can at least determine that glorification did not precede justification. In other words, God justified us at the moment of our salvation, and yet we still anticipate our glorification when we're no longer sinful. It's all taken away. So you think through that foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified. Ephesians 1, what pastor's been preaching through on Sunday mornings, is another text thinking through the the order of salvation, but... In order to keep the main thing the main thing, I just wanted to introduce that to you so you're aware of it. It's a fascinating thing, and it's just simply trying to consider the logical order of what goes, what goes first, second, etc. Miss Sari. Uh, good question. Let's look. Okay, yes, they all are aorist, active, indicative. So, past tense. Which is interesting because everything up to justified is past tense in our experience. But glorified, he puts it in the past tense along with it. But I would have said future. From God's perspective, though it all happens Who can know the mind of God? But yeah, that's how he looks at it. It's as good as done is the way I think of it. It's as good as done. So from God's perspective, the fact that he saved us is the fact that he glorified us. Really fun. That's right. Jesus will not lose any that are his.
3: Amen. Amen.